Ladies and gentlemen, if we could get started on this session of the Alumni Weekend Programme. My name's Andrew Hamilton, I'm the Vice-Chancellor of the University, and to this afternoon we're going to be ha having a discussion, a panel discussion, about perhaps one of the most important topics that this university could ever consider, and that is an Oxford education. And many of you may have seen the uh, walking around the streets of Oxford this afternoon, large numbers of subfusk wearing, begowned uh, graduates who were all participating in graduation ceremony at the Sheldonian this morning and this afternoon. I was presiding, which is why I've been running around all day in and out of different things. But it was in many respects a perfect setting for a discussion of this type, because all of those students, as they received their DPhil degree, their Bachelor of Arts, or their Master of Science degrees, whatever it was they studied, they were in that magical day of graduation, and they all looked extremely happy. They all looked contented. They all looked as if they didn't have a care in the world. But of course we know that they do have cares and tomorrow morning they'll wake up and some of them will be still job hunting for that first job on the bottom, bottom rung of the ladder. Uh, others will be worrying about paying back their student loans and, and uh, still others will be concerned that perhaps the things they studied in Oxford aren't going to be the right things to pr prepare them for, uh, for the job market. There will be many things that will concern them. And for us in Oxford, I think perhaps the most challenging thing for us in 2013, as we try very hard to maintain an education for both undergraduates and graduate students, an education of the very highest quality, is how do we do that? In a period, and I think almost everyone would agree, the last five years in the United Kingdom have been among the most tumultuous years in higher education since the end of the Second World War. And yet there has been, and there is a very strong intention to be, a continuation of the excellence and the commitment to an outstanding education here in Oxford. So what I wanted to explore today with our panel, uh, we have four members here of the Oxford community, different representation, different uh, experiences here, to discuss this topic, an Oxford education. And I, what I hope they'll do is they'll cover things like an Oxford education in the national context, uh, a world in the UK, as I said, where higher education is changing, private providers are coming into the fray. Uh, intense competition, both within the UK and from international universities. Changes in curriculum that naturally occur as fields evolve and the teaching of those subjects evolve. The internationalization of the student body, what does that bring both positively and perhaps even negatively to life in Oxford and the student experience in Oxford. And of course, that critical underpinning of our undergraduate 
education, the tutorial system. What's it like in the 21st century? And I might even challenge a little later on, how does the digital revolution perhaps allow us to think about Oxford tutorials in a different way? But that may be a discussion for later. And of course, in a great university like Oxford, there is a wonderful linking between the teaching of students and the research that is carried out by professors, by academics, by lecturers, both in their departments and in the colleges. And is that always a good thing? Many of us would argue that having world-leading research in a university at the same time as we are teaching undergraduates and graduate students is a very good thing that reinforces the quality of the education. But there's sometimes a tension, and many of you may be aware, the tension between teaching and research, the time pressures on an academic stay, the career progression that academics and the promotions that they get. So fascinating subjects. We're going to be exploring all of them. And our panelists today are at the end. We have Mike Nicholson. And Mike is the Director of Undergraduate Admissions and Outreach at the university. We then have next to him Dr. Helen Swift. And Helen is, the, is a university lecturer in medieval French at St. Hilda's College. Uh, then we have Priscilla Santos. And Priscilla is a postgraduate student here at Oxford. She's studying for an MSc in Nature, Society, and Environmental Policy. And Priscilla, what's your college? St. Anne's. It's St. Anne's. Yes. OK, mm -hmm. St. Anne's College. And then next to me, we have Jenny Brennan. And Jenny is an undergraduate studying PPE at UNIV. And uh, she's going to give us some thoughts uh, in a few minutes' time on the undergraduate perspective of, of, of uh, pressures and, and challenges in, in contemporary education. But let's begin with Mike Nicholson. Mike has responsibility for admissions in Oxford. And as I was touching upon the various pressures in 2013 on Oxford University, every one of you knows, you open your newspapers, one of the highest pressures is the question of admissions, the diversity of our student body, the access approaches that we take to bring in students from a wide range of socio-economic and ethnic backgrounds. And Mike has responsibility for that. And so perhaps, Mike, you might talk for a few minutes what you see as the challenges of, of making sure that Oxford is a place that's open to everybody. Thank you very much, Vice-Chancellor. Um, I think probably to start off with, it is important to, to stress, uh, I'm not responsible. Um, <laughs> it's one of the best parts of the job, that I'm often the person shoved in front of a TV camera, but actually the joy of being Director of Admissions at Oxford is you know that you have the support and the engagement of the entire academic community. Uh, Oxford, unlike most other UK universities now, is an institution where the decisions on who are admitted remains very much with the academic community. And it's a consensus decision as well. So any student who is successful at getting into Oxford, they are there because a group of tutors in their college and in their discipline concur that they are the most appropriate students, show the greatest potential for future success 
in their undergraduate studies. And students who are unsuccessful can at least take some solace from the fact that if they are not given a place, it is because it has also been a consensus decision by a number of tutors reviewing quite a wide body of evidence that whilst they are no doubt very good students, they are not quite the students at the moment that Oxford would want to see. Now that doesn't stop them subsequently reapplying, either for undergraduate study or in fact increasingly commonly for postgraduate study. Um, and we'd certainly not want a student who's unsuccessful to feel that that marred their chances of ever returning to Oxford at a future stage. So, um, as I said, I'm, I'm in a very fortunate position because I'm, there are about 1,600 uh, academic uh, colleagues who will engage very, very actively in the undergraduate admissions process. Um, the challenges that we face, uh, some of them are challenges that most UK universities face, some are challenges that international universities face, but there are some very, very specific issues I think that Oxford uh, has to deal with. The first, and possibly the most interesting, is the constant uh, mythology or replaying of old uh, sores about what it is to do to get into Oxford University. And probably the, the greatest element of my role is challenging people's perceptions, often based on historical uh, practices about what we are looking for when we're looking for students. The really encouraging thing is um, there isn't a vast long list of criteria that we're trying to address. It actually boils down to one very, very simple thing. We want the students who are showing the greatest academic aptitude and potential for success at Oxford. And everybody agrees that as well. It isn't something that is uh, conflicting uh, across colleges or subject areas. It's something that there's a very common understanding and awareness of around the university. So in some senses, that makes uh, the, the process of admissions very straightforward. Because what we're trying to do is identify methodologies and uh, accumulate evidence that will allow us to assess students fairly, uh, equally across the board, uh, so we're not giving preference to any particular group of students, we're not in a situation where legacy students, for instance, have a significant advantage over students who have no family history or tradition of applying to uh, university, never mind Oxford. Uh, we're very fortunate, though, in recognising that for some students, where there isn't much backup either from their school or from their family, we can use the resources that we're very generously provided with through donors particularly uh, to try and give those students the knowledge base, the experience and the understanding so that they can even up effectively and compete against students very effectively who come from schools or from backgrounds where there's a lot of knowledge about the Oxford admissions process. Key to all of this is our relationship with teachers. Uh, teachers are fundamental in students making informed and educated uh, applications to university. Many teachers, of course, themselves haven't been through Oxford or Cambridge, uh, so they've got their own particular viewpoints that sometimes we've got a challenge before we can even begin to engage uh, as far as um, working with students are concerned. Um, the good thing, though, about teachers is once you've kind of got them on side, then they tend to remain on side, and they remain on side for a long time. Um, so much of our focus in the last four or five years in particular has been building bridges with teachers, giving teachers the opportunity to find out more about how the university works. Now, much of that has been focused in the UK because that's our still primary market. But increasingly, we're seeing very good applicants uh, at undergraduate level from international schools. And it's very important to us that those guidance counsellors and teachers in international schools are aware of the differences between what Oxford is trying to do when we're searching out students 
and what maybe our major international competitors, Harvard, Yale, Princeton, might be looking for. The American liberal arts experience is a very, very different thing to an Oxford tutorial undergraduate degree. And sometimes I think, certainly in the contact we've had with uh, international guidance counsellors, the students that sometimes in, say, the US system are seen as being difficult because all they really want to do is study a subject and are very narrow focus, and who often the guidance counsellors are struggling to kind of incorporate into the US liberal arts system, suddenly find that the Oxford system is actually a really, really good route for those students to engage with. So the work that we do with teachers is really important. Uh, we also are very conscious, particularly in the UK, that um, it's very easy for Oxford to kind of think of Oxford and then maybe Cambridge and then maybe the rest of the UK. Um, and the further away you are from Oxford, maybe the perspective is that the, least, uh, the less interest we've got in working with you or working with your students. So all of the colleges over the last four years have identified parts of the United Kingdom that they are taking primarily responsibility for working with. Uh, that's been great because it means that we now have a very effective means of engaging with all of the 4,500 secondary schools and colleges across the UK. Uh, we do it on a local authority basis, so in Helen's case, uh, St Hilda's work with Surrey. We do. Uh, and uh, St Anne's uh, works with primarily uh, schools in the northeast. Uh, UNIV seems to spread their gifts all over the place, uh, but I think does some work in the West Midlands, does some work in Stoke. 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 Fair enough. <laughs> we went on tour to Stoke. Um, and <laughs> some work, I think, in London as well. There's a couple of yeah. London boroughs that we work with. So, what we effectively can do then is, is utilise the resources of the university in a very targeted fashion, uh, and it means that those students and those teachers uh, from schools where there's no tradition or history of applying to Oxford at least have an initial point of contact. Uh, rather than thinking, well, where on earth do I even start in engaging with this institution? I think the other areas that we uh, need to be conscious of, and I'll, I'll bring myself to a close so my colleagues have a chance to speak, we're very conscious at the moment because of the changing in the funding system at undergraduate level, particularly in the UK, that there's a lot of mythology around the cost of going to university and an assumption that Oxford, because it offers so much, is going to cost a lot more than most other universities. So we've been very fortunate in the generosity of alumni, uh, donors, the, the work that both the university and the colleges have been doing, uh, to raise a substantial amount of resource to ensure that students from very low-income households have the opportunity to come to Oxford without any concern that they won't be able to afford, to afford fully to engage with the opportunities that Oxford offer. And actually, that's a really important uh, consideration uh, it would be a real shame, given the amount of time and energy and effort we put into recruiting students, if we then, having made an offer to a UK student or an EU student, we lost them because they then couldn't afford, or rather, they felt they couldn't afford, uh, felt they couldn't afford to actually come here and flourish. Um, in finishing up, um, the final thing that we are very conscious of is we're, we're subject to an awful lot of media attention and political attention. And we can often not do, do good for doing wrong or doing wrong for doing good. I'm not quite sure which way around that should be. Um, but what it effectively means is we are often um, in a situation where you will hear something as an alum uh, in the news and it sounds like Oxford's getting a bit of a pounding. What you should then more or less hear pretty much straight away is a rebuttal. Um, we've got very good in the last few years, partly uh, through the work that we do to try and actually be better at knowing our own process than anybody who might be challenging us, better at actually having statistics to then throw into the fray uh, to kind of uh, disprove what we're being challenged on, and also because we've got a very, very effective uh, media team who, who are good at 
um, assisting people like myself in uh, making rebuttal statements. But if you do hear something negative in the press, don't just kind of shake your head in dismay uh, and move on. Do keep your eye out for what will probably turn up in the next 24 hours, uh, which will probably be the actual situation <laughs> as opposed to the political or media-inspired belief in why we're not doing as well as we possibly could. Great. Thank you, Mike. And, and now, obviously, with all of that hard work at, uh, on admissions and, and, and widening participation, we then choose outstand, outstanding students and they come to Oxford. Let me ask you, Helen, from the tutor's perspective, are those students sufficiently prepared for the rigors of their degree program? And then let me ask you, as a tutor, is the tutorial system relevant for the 21st century and the challenges that those students will face after graduation? So what I want to address is to offer a tutor's perspective. We'll forget the medieval French for a minute, though I will come back <laughs> to the French later on, and I can come back to the medieval at any time. Um, to offer a tutor's perspective on primarily the undergraduate tutorial system. So I'm not speaking about postgraduate teaching, which is certainly not because I don't believe that it's a vital part of everything that I do as a tutor, but because the tutorial system does come in for um, a lot of scrutiny and questioning. Um, and what I want to think about is um, two aspects. When we're thinking about the tutorial system, um, who's doing the teaching and who's doing the learning as part of this system, and what are we aiming to learn through it? Um, as the Vice-Chancellor was saying, teaching and learning are seen as being intimately related, and that's most often in phrases such as the importance of research-led teaching, which is important, I believe, but I want to turn that round for my present purposes and think more about teaching-led research, which I think is an important and um, underestimated element of what we do and a helpful way of looking at what we're doing through our teaching process. Because the way we go about teaching through tutorials is clearly aimed at making students feel that they have a full role to play, that their voice matters, and that they're being taken seriously as intellectual beings. And I think this is something that students generally first encounter in an interview. And I was speaking yesterday during the open day to some of my students who were speaking about their interview experience, and they, one of the things they did say was, you're being interviewed by someone who's taking seriously what you say. And this is somebody who you know knows far more about your subject, but they still value what you're saying. And that creates a very particular dynamic that I think is very important for making sure that the learning side of things isn't just the students, but is also us as tutors. That we're gaining fresh perspectives, we're having fresh questions thrown at us, and that makes us think afresh about our own disciplines, um, acquire new questions in our research, and is one of the great privileges of teaching, frankly. Now, this all sounds a very ambitious framework for the learning process, and one that could seem a bit daunting to someone who is an applicant, who's going to say, so I'm going to be participating in world-leading research, but I don't really know anything. Um, and certainly when students, when they first arrive, do get a, can get a bit worried about, well, I'm going to be having this discussion with someone. I've only done a week's reading. They've done years' worth of reading. And I think the tutorials redress the balance. Because in a way that I think is the most important similarity between tutorials and interviews, admissions interviews, the emphasis is far more on the how than on the what. In other words, we're working our way not just into a chunk of knowledge, but through how you think round that piece of knowledge, or a set of problems, or a hypothesis, or an argument. 
So the, uh, it's all about how we're approaching this, how are student, students chewing it over, how we're discussing it in the tutorial, rather than a certain body of knowledge that we're wanting to convey. This therefore gives students a lot of intellectual freedom, and which I think is one of the things they find most challenging when they arrive, because they're not, it's something they're not familiar with. Whether this is because they've been in a system such as, say, the current secondary school system here in the UK, where there are very set criteria for their assessment, and therefore suddenly saying, well, what do you think? Well, where do I start? How do I know? Um, or if students are coming to us out of a system where their independent thought has, been, has had less emphasis than more of a learning by rote sort of system. Um, so this can seem quite a risk to suddenly embark upon this freedom, and therefore it very much behoves us as tutors to support students in encountering this, because they have a lot of time, and certainly in the undergraduate degree, I think one of the whole points of not having formal exams between the start of the second year and the end of your final year is it gives you the time to develop, to find out how to use this intellectual freedom, to develop how you write essays, to find different ways of structuring your ideas. And I think this, this freedom encourages confidence, it encourages flexibility, and training how your mind works is, I think, all part and parcel of what we're supposed to be doing. It's the real pith of learning. One of my students last term signed off an email to me in the afternoon after we had a tutorial in the morning by saying, P.S. My brain still hurts, brackets, in a good way. <laughs> and and I, was, I was delighted. I thought, you know, ultimate job satisfaction immediately. I have made your brain hurt in a good way. <laughs> sometimes when we're speaking to prospective applicants, even the most careful wording can sometimes trip us up when we're speaking about, very rightly, advising students to choose an education system, a university that's suited in its approach to learning, suited to how they're going to learn. So the tutorial system, we say, would you perform well in the tutorial system? And I think the idea of performance can be problematic because it can convey the idea that we're looking for people who are showmen and that the tutorial is a forum for displaying your knowledge rather than for exploring it, questioning it, such like. And this is one of the things I try to make explicit a lot in tutorials by um, talk verbalising aloud my thinking process. This can obviously, obviously go terribly wrong at times. Um, but by saying explicitly, um, I'm not quite sure if what I'm going to say is true, but let's work it through and see where we get. Um, and that immediately makes it feel much more of a level playing field that we're all part of this discussion. It's a collaborative process, and we're all on the same side, which I think is hugely important. Um, learning at university level is a process, and here I'd recapitulate the importance of the fact that we're not examining you every five minutes. And I know that my first year students, particularly as linguists, let's say there are certain weaknesses that they have in language and they want to improve. And they're used to the idea that they can make progress very quickly, because that's usually how they will have accelerated their way through school or college. And here, it's going to take them some years. So that knotty bit of translation might only get resolved by the time they get to their final examinations. So this requires a degree of reassurance on our part and perseverance and patience on their part. But it does mean when they get through to finals, they realise the journey that they've been on. So one of my students said to me in revision tutorials this last year, I just want to apologise to you, Helen, for that essay that I wrote at the start of the second year. It was awful. I said, no, David, it wasn't awful. It was because you were at the start of your second year. And you're now realising how much you've developed since then, which he really had. Um, 
A teaching process anchored in tutorials can seem a bit daunting, but I think it's more properly the most supportive environment that you can have because it picks up in the teaching process everything that we're doing at admissions by looking at an individual student. And I think in the way that we're nurturing and supporting individuals through the teaching process means that we can properly cater for the greatest variety of students that we have. When I say individual, that's not really meaning in the singular, because it's much more common now for tutorials to incorporate two or even three students rather than one. Um, students prefer this, and I think, I think it's pedagogically optimal, because it also makes it more likely that teaching and learning isn't just going to be happening in the tutorial, there's going to be a spillover. And I know this from our students who form their own little reading groups outside the tutorial, or have said to me, oh, we were talking about that essay on the way here, or even, do you know, that text, yeah, we were talking about it in the pub the other night, you think, this is it, this is the whole process of teaching and learning. My own subject area model languages is, I think, particularly conscious of working at recruitment, and particularly of students, in a shifting landscape. And modern languages is often portrayed as you know, a subject that's in decline. There's decline in students at A-level, uh, lamented every year. They'll pick up at GCSE this year, we note. Um, and a sense of a general national decline in skills in languages. It can all look very gloomy. Um, but this doesn't mean there are fewer talented linguists out there. It just means that we have to make sure that they find out that they are talented linguists by encouraging them to keep studying languages, uh, which broadens our whole preoccupation with the teaching and learning process. So we want to ensure that we've got courses that promote what we feel is valuable, but at the same time in a way that makes sense to an audience who are, for instance, less experienced in the study of literature in the target language. And we want to make sure that we're giving the right opportunities to foster the study of languages. So we're increasingly offering languages from scratch. We're about to offer German from scratch alongside all the other languages that we currently give ab initio. And working, to pick up on something Mike was saying, in concert with teacher colleagues in schools to feed enthusiasm for languages, particularly at crucial, particularly at crucial junctures, so between key stage three uh, key stage four and A level. Um, in sum, I think my perspective on an Oxford education is both how broadly that education extends in ways I've just been suggesting both beyond the higher education context and also beyond any given class or tutorial, and how it's about every participant in that education process, including us as tutors. Um, and I think it's appropriate to leave the last word to what another of my students who remarked at the end of a series of tutorials on medieval French texts, said, it makes you think. <laughs> <laughs> I thought they said it wrong so well. <laughs> and, and, and that's very much the tutor's perspective. Let me, let me turn to Jenny now. Does it feel that way from the undergraduate's perspective? Are you getting that kind of experience in tutorials? And, and perhaps you'd also touch upon Jenny the challenges that you face as a student also with the funding question and, and, and your perspective on that. Sure. Um, I just want to kind of preclude this with, we didn't meet up before. We haven't discussed what we're about to say, but what <laughs> I find unbelievably uncanny is how some of the things that I had written down in my notes exactly mirror, <laughs> including like terminology, some of the things that have just been said. Um, so I just want to give you all a heads up that it's completely authentic. Uh, no planning involved. So I, I feel that's quite a strong, a strong indicator in itself. Um, so, um, so last term, um, I sat in a philosophy tutorial and I used Bayern Munich football team in an analogy 
um, during an argument on utilitarianism. Now, I didn't think I knew anything about Bayern Munich football team, but a week earlier, I didn't actually think I knew anything about utilitarianism. <laughs> and here I was, uh, sat in a tutorial with an expert in the field discussing both. And more to the point, I had something to say. Um, and to me, that like underpins an Oxford education. Uh, so as an undergraduate student who's uh, just finished her first year and about to go into my second, um, I've seen the tutorial system from the inside, if you like. Um, and to me, what it is about is it's about synthesis and exploration. Um, so you kind of tackle a piled high reading list and you have to synthesize it um, into an understanding that covers breadth in that you cover a lot of material, but at the same time depth in that you go into the ideas and concepts behind it. Um, you develop the confidence to hold your own on complex topics and receive the encouragement to really delve into the things that captivate you out of uh, the range of things that you study. Um, so it's not often that a person can say that they learnt from the person who wrote the book, but it happens uncannily frequently at Oxford. Um, to sit with an expert in the field and discuss not only age-old ideas, but also the latest academic research. And I think this is where the research kind of element comes into <clears> it, is that whilst you might be able to go and read up about uh, historical viewpoints on this or well-documented theories, um, it's a really unique experience to have that then capped off with someone turning around to you and going, yeah, and what they're thinking about in my department at the moment is what if this instead... Um, it's fantastic. Um, so, um, uh, and that, um, that kind of unique perspective that you get on a subject really kind of underpins how an Oxford education works for me. Um, but for me also, the tutorial system sits as a core within a wider framework. Um, so my macroeconomics lectures um, were like, introduced this year with um, the bad news for the country is that your lecturer has not just become the bad the governor of the Bank of England. Uh, the good news for you is he's still here to do your lectures. Um, and that just, I just don't think that happens everywhere. Um, so um, the resources alongside your course are not something to be underestimated. Um, the Bodleian needs no introduction. But I don't think I really grasped before I turned up just how many options in terms of libraries, both to get books from, to work in, to the extent that there's actually a student group who do library tours where they aim to work in every different library in the university. Um, uh, but beyond this, uh, there's actually the Oxford community, which I think forms as much of the education as some of the kind of more traditionally discussed aspects. Uh, so this year, um, I played drums for a new production um, of a student written musical called A Theory of Justice, the musical. Just think political philosophy with jazz hands. Um, and uh, so they ran a series of um, pre-show lectures. And uh, one of the, tutor the lecturers said, oh, I mentioned this to my colleague and said, isn't it great? They're doing a whole musical just about political philosophy. And he went, oh, that's nothing. When I was at Harvard, they did a musical on Wittgenstein. Um, <laughs> to which actually my tutor responded that Wittgenstein was overdone in student theater and John Rawls was really pushing the boat out. <laughs> um, but my point is uh, that academic debates go beyond um, what happens in the classroom or the tutor tutor's office. Um, it's the fact that 
over dinner as well as discussing what happened in the last episode of Breaking Bad or if so-and-so-and-so-and-so are actually going to go out anytime soon. Um, you discuss the latest political issues. You discuss in-depth on ethics or new scientific research. And that's totally normal. Um, and that's a really nice thing um, in that you learn not just from your tutors, but also from your peers. So um, I've covered, roughly speaking, what I find unique about the student experience from an academic perspective um, and why I think it's a fantastic opportunity. But I also want to say that for me, that opportunity is only possible because of the financial support offered by the university. Um, so I am in that year group. So the one for which the fee hike really hit. Uh, the one that moaned the most, that's, that's <laughs> us. Um, but I'm also very lucky. So my parents are really supportive of what I do, um, but they're not financially capable of supporting that. Um, and so I was, you know, initially when I was in sixth form concerned about how I was gonna finance my way through university. Um, if early on in that process, I had known the extent and the effort that the university puts in to making sure that every student is financially supported, I'd have had to have worried a lot less and I really hope and I hate to think actually that there's any risk of a student not putting in that application because they're worried that they can't afford it because I genuinely believe that I don't think I'd have been well as well supported in this respect anywhere else uh, there's financial support both on the university level uh, both through uh, fee reductions and bursaries so done this hand thing, one in the sense that it brings your long-term debt down, but it also uh, helps support you in terms of your living arrangements, but also on the college level. Um, so the college offers support both in term time, but also additional holiday period support if that's needed. Um, there are also hardship funds. So you might go in, and this is uh, no friends for which this has been the case, uh, you go in a perfectly financially okay level, but in this economic climate, anything can happen. Um, and you're not okay, and that's fine. Like the university will, wants to make sure that you're not worrying about how you're gonna fund yourself as opposed to what you should be saying about Wittgenstein in this essay. Um, <laughs> so, um, so that's something that I think is really important about the university. Um, and it's also something that yesterday I found myself saying at the University Open Data Prospective Students. And here I am talking to a group of alumni on the same thing. Um, and I think that nicely rounds up what I want to say about the student experience. Um, it's just the sheer variety. Um, so in terms of you get to stand and inspire the future, sit and learn from the past. Um, you can learn from academics as well as your peers. And uh, more to the point, you can practice philosophy in an essay or you can do it with jazz hands. <laughs> That's what I have to say. Thank, thank you. Now, Priscilla, from the graduate student perspective, the education, the link to research, the involvement of academics in your education, and the financial demands. Your thoughts? Yeah, so first of all, I think it's easier to talk uh, after all the other panelists have talked because they have touched upon some things that I'm going to mention as well. So I think I am the perfect example of what Mike uh, Nicholson mentioned about uh, that Oxford accepts uh, various socioeconomic and ethnical backgrounds. So uh, I was born and raised in the Brazilian Amazon. Uh, and Oxford was such a distant reality, metaphorically and physically, of course. 
And then I think sometimes to be able to be here, actually, you don't have to believe some people. <laughs> because when I started saying that oh, I'm going to apply for Oxford, one by one, people were laughing at me. Number two were like, Priscilla, what are you thinking? I mean, do you really think you're going to make it to Oxford? Uh, and do you really think you have the money? I was like, no, I don't have it. <laughs> Priscilla, you're just wasting your time. So number one, don't believe in people. Uh, actually, go on the website and make sure that you find uh, all the funding opportunities and that you read there that any student can make it as long as they have, um, anyway, good grades and they are good students and they have some experience working maybe. Um, so actually, I would never be here if it wasn't for funding, if it wasn't for um, scholarships that I received from my college and um, from a foundation that's linked to my college. Um, so I'm, I'm very thankful for that, and especially for overseas students, the fees are really even higher. So yeah, don't believe in people, believe in what the website says, and just like I said, don't believe in uh, media sometimes, just believe in what people here have to, have to offer. Uh, so I, I worked as uh, a lawyer and uh, and a researcher in climate change in Brazil and with indigenous peoples in the Amazon. And it was very good to come here and have a more international perspective on environmental policy. So I started environmental policy here for my course. And I think uh, it's very good to see that there are indigenous peoples or sometimes traditional communities in other countries that go through the same challenges that indigenous peoples in my country are going through. Uh, and I really hope that with the knowledge that I acquired here, I can actually make a, a more effective contribution uh, when I go back to Brazil. And I think uh, in Oxford education, my perspective of an Oxford education is that uh, the combination of Oxford degree and the professional experience that you have, or maybe if you don't have it, the, 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 the experience you're gonna have because you have an, an Oxford degree is just totally I mean, it grows uh, enormously. And because of Oxford, I've, I've actually used many of Oxford's uh, resources. Because of Oxford's Career Center, for example, I got an internship in Germany that I'm doing right now in the, um, in the Academy of European Law, uh, which is being very useful because I'm exactly in a project about um, environmental law in, in, the, in the EU. Uh, so. Uh, I think this freedom that, that um, was talked about is something that frightens us sometimes. So when I came here, I was asking my, my supervisor, so this is my outline for my dissertation, what do you think? No, what do you think? <laughs> and I'm like, no, uh, what I think is written here in this paper, now I want to know what you think. And actually it is like this, no Priscilla, the more one ownership you have of your paper, the best your paper is going to be. So you have to tell me if it's good or not. So this freedom is, uh, it bothers us sometimes, but after we finish, now that I'm finished with dissertation, I just feel that I have grown so much because I really had to ask myself, is this good enough? Uh, okay, yes, I think it is. And in the beginning it was not. So, I mean, how you go throughout the process and with this freedom, it's, you actually feel that that's my work. Uh, yes, my supervisor looked at it and she gave me very useful feedback, but it was, uh, I think it was the first time that I actually did something that I had to, first of all, assess it, if it was good enough. 
And I remember when I was stuck in this process of writing a dissertation, a friend of mine, and then I said, oh, I don't, I'm not sure if this is Oxford material. <laughs> and she said to me, Priscilla, you are Oxford material. <laughs> you have been chosen to study in the university. So I really like that. Um, you are uh, in a community of research and you are surrounded by other students from all over um, the world who are good and you know that they are good because they made it to, to be here. And that makes you feel confident, but that makes you feel always like um, asking yourself if you're compared to them, if you're better or not. But I think it was very good that she told me that uh, Oxford trusts you and needs you as much as you need Oxford because they actually want the best students from many different places and they want to have this international um, uh, perspective. So it, it is important for them, the research that you were doing about indigenous peoples in the Amazon. So yes, uh, don't ask if this is Oxford material. It, it definitely is. And Oxford trusts you as much as you trust Oxford. So I was very happy to, um, to hear that. And it feels really good to come back here uh, taking a break from my internship, which was organized by university. Uh, and yeah, it's like this, when you're here, you're so busy doing so many things, and sometimes you want to run away, but when you are away, you just want to come back. <laughs> and that's how I feel today. I'm really happy to be here again. Um, thank you very much for the opportunity. Well, let me thank you. You've all painted a very compelling, and a, you know, for a vice chancellor, it warms the cockles of my heart. <laughs> <laughs> but I also know Mike touched upon the comments and the criticism we often get in the in the media. We get comments and criticism from inside Oxford that not everything is as good as it could be. Not everything is as right as it could be. Let me challenge the four of you. What can be improved here? What isn't working as well as it might? We've tended, at least in my area, to worry about getting people to apply and get them through the door. What's becoming very clear is we've got to worry about what happens to them next. Yeah. Um, so there's a growing I think consideration of, so we brought these students to the point where they've got to Oxford, but if they want to become uh, an academic researcher, if they want to go into the professions, it probably doesn't stop with the first degree. And for many students, particularly those who come from backgrounds where there's no support, no family tradition, it's things like internship opportunities, often organised actually by alumni, that will give those students the opportunity to engage, to find out whether they want to go into the legal profession or whether they want to go into teaching or whatever. Um, and I think that's, I think, the next big challenge from where I sit. I can get them to, to apply. I can generally now get them in the door. But I need to be fairly confident that they can then progress on. And that's a whole new range of activity. Yeah. Yeah. Others? Things that can be improved in Oxford? Um, so I think, well, so one, it, it's... Yet yeah, a strength, but maybe a kind of a long-term weakness um, is that obviously we do endless out. So I'm also, as well as being a university student ambassador, I'm a college ambassador. Um, we've touched on the outreach that's being done. Um, and it's not that we're not trying, we definitely are, but there's always gonna be, like the sky's the limit with improvement here. Um, mainly because there are still, and I say pockets, they're larger than pockets, uh, plastic bags, I'm not sure, um, of the country in which that outreach just hasn't hit yet. 
um, in terms of showing people that the financial concerns really aren't the case. I do tours, I say, is anyone here worried about whether they could afford to come to the university? The answer is don't. Um, but you have to explain that. Um, I've done tours of schools and I've had teachers sit down next to me and go, so, um, so are there any admissions tests? There aren't any admissions tests, are there, for undergraduates? Yes, there are. Um, and that's, that's fine, because they've not had access to those resources, but it's making sure that they can. So communication yeah. is one thing, I think, that, that, that many of us feel we aren't as effective as we could be in getting those messages out. And also, you touched upon, uh, Jenny, the financial package that Oxford offers we aren't as effective as we could be in getting that information to 16 and 17 year olds. Helen. I think from my perspective, one of the areas where there's an increasing demand amongst teachers who are already engaging with getting information about the admissions process, they're then wanting further information about how to develop their students as intellectual beings. And that's where I think a lot of subject specific um, outreach can be very helpful. So this is outreach not coming so much out of colleges or out of the central university operations, but coming out of faculties and departments. And it's something I've been working on in modern languages in, a, I suppose, a slightly ad hoc way, because it's one of those things that is also happening alongside everything else that I'm doing, alongside that medieval French that I mm. keep mentioning. Um, and um, being approached by a lot of teachers who are saying, we'd really like to do taster sessions. We'd really like to have someone such as yourself or your colleagues come out to um, give our year 10s or year 11s in particular at the point when they're starting to think about so what am I going to do for A level a sense of what modern languages given it's my own subject can offer them partly at university so how it all becomes different and inspiring at a higher level but also why taking this route could be useful and where it's going to take me in life and so engaging with um, work in that nature and involving, and this is always one of the things I try to do, involving my current students in that um, on a more subject specific basis and I think that's where a lot of development is already happening in some departments and we'd like to do a lot more in other departments and it's always a question of um, yeah. human resource and, and financial resource. Let, let me challenge the four of you. I, ha I, mm. I have children about the age of Priscilla and uh, Jenny and certainly, I don't know about you, Priscilla and Jenny, my children, I don't think, ever pick up a newspaper. They mm. get all of their information <laughs> online through yeah. their digital yeah. resources. How will the digital revolution affect Oxford and an Oxford education? Uh, many of you will know there's a, there's a, it's not a word, I suppose it's an acronym that's now made it into the Oxford English Dictionary. It's the word MOOC. M-O-O-C, and it stands for Massive Open Online Courses. And so hmm. can we imagine a future, Helen, Jenny, where tutorials will be given online and Priscilla can stay in the Amazon? And, and uh, uh, you know, uh, what will be the impact on Oxford of digital Resources. Actually, I'm going to try to, to link the last question to this one. So actually, uh, what I think Oxford maybe could get better on is that, for example, my course in my department is a geography and environment. Um, so it's supposed to be an international environmental policy course. But sometimes, um, uh, not only uh, me, but other students from other countries, we, we, we couldn't feel that there were people working in our countries, for example. Mm. And yes, they were specialists in forest issues, but not in Brazil. And sometimes I had to grasp that information by myself or um, 
informally talk to some other specialists in Brazil to help uh, in writing my dissertation. So I think actually uh, the MOOC can be, it can play a really important part on that because yeah. I can be studying in Oxford um, um, with good professors and doing research and then I can be in contact online with experts in Brazil that are connected to the Oxford University in a way and they can give me feedback and we can have Skype meetings and we can exchange information. So I think um, definitely, especially now that developing countries, I mean, of course, one department cannot have a professor which is ex an expert in everything in all the countries in the world. Um, but I think special, special attention maybe should be given in developing countries, especially countries that have been growing up a lot, like Brazil, India, China. Um, so yes, if your department does not have a specialist on that matter, definitely they should try to find some, some specialists online so you see it and link them as to as a way of, 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 of providing an enormous opportunity for breadth, for expertise. Let me yes, finish, definitely. and I know many of you have uh, dinners that you've got to get to, but let me finish by asking Helen and Jenny, could you imagine a tutorial delivered online? Helen, you in the south of France, Jenny in Stoke-on-Trent, <laughs> could you imagine that or would something be lost? So I feel the risk of loss comes in that I said that there's an aspect of the university experience that doesn't just happen in the tutorial, it's the fact that when we leave the tutorial, we walk away together and we discuss that essay. Yeah. Um, at the same time... But now you live a life online. Now I live Facebook a life online, right? And, uh, There's no reason that we can't just tweet about that essay afterwards <laughs> instead. Um, and I think the other role it might also have is actually it links in with outreach in that whilst I said earlier that there are huge parts of the United Kingdom who have no idea about the admissions process and students who have no access to any yeah. of those resources, um, actually take that, you scale it up internationally it's even harder to get that outreach and if there would be a way of showing the students who need to like want to know how to engage or engaging students internationally like that online which I think there powerful. really is yeah. that'll be a really powerful tool. Helen last word. Um, I mean I think in, in terms of student mobility with students moving around particularly postgraduates I mean Skype supervisions are something that a lot of us are already doing and I was doing one last week and that works extremely well Usually, once you've established a relationship first, mm -hmm. um, I think yeah. it's complementary rather yeah. than ever replacing yeah. it. Yeah. And I think it's also in terms of digital developments, all the things that we're doing within the university in terms of digitised resources and podcasts and resources within the university's own um, um, online learning environment that, again, complement all the sorts of teaching that we're doing. So I think it's always going to be complementary. I couldn't see it replacing. Well, that's comforting to know that the Oxford <laughs> tutorial system can't be replaced even by Facebook. But ladies and gentlemen, this is obviously a topic we could just carry on talking for hours and hours and hours. There's so many perspectives, so many interesting questions. We will be around for, for some time now for anyone who wants to come up and talk to a member of the panel. But let me thank all of you for being in the audience and, and participating with us in this topic that is important to all of us, which is an Oxford education. So would you join me in thanking Mike, Helen, Priscilla, and Jenny for their contribution. <laughs>